Welcome back to Agent Investor, inspiring stories of active agents investing in real estate and building passive income. In a business where potential deals are all around you, why not leverage your skills to invest for yourself, your family, and your future? And now, let's jump into the latest episode of Agent Investor. All right, guys, welcome back to the Agent Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Caffarella. I got Nick Cooley on today out of Denver. Nick, how's it going? Awesome, man. Uh, we're doing our best Miami impersonation with the weather so far this year in Denver. So uh, it's, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah, I'm in. Uh, so it's obviously it's December in Boston. We haven't had any snowfall and it's probably like 45 or 50 out today. So, uh, yeah, definitely some unusual weather patterns, I guess, across the country, but definitely at right. least locally for me. Um so yeah, like we like we talked about before we we got started. I mean, that the premise of the show is to to feature people who have their real estate license who have invested. And I know you mentioned to me that like you started with investing and then became an agent. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of the beginning stages? Like, what got you even thinking about investing in real estate to, to begin? Yeah, totally. So my wife and I, a girlfriend at the time, moved to Denver from Austin, Texas. And we went to a New Year's Eve party with a buddy of mine that I played football in college with. And he had just gotten into the business uh, of being a lender. And he was telling me about these people that he worked with that uh, they would buy houses and have other people pay them off for them. And that was kind of the first nugget in an expensive market like Denver that I was like, oh, I can you know buy five, six, 15 houses and have other people pay them off. And boom, there's your retirement. So that's kind of the nugget that got us started down that road. How, how uh, far back was that? Uh, so we that would have been 2015. So six years ago, or almost seven. And what were you doing at that time? Were you currently working? Like, what were you doing at that point? I was. So by the time uh, that we had, uh, we were moving from Austin because I was getting a promotion within my business-to-business -business sales role. Um, in undergrad, in college, I was thinking that I was going to go to med school. So I was a pre-med student. Same, did the same end here. Care. Same here. Yeah. That's and, a tough road, man. Tough road. Well, and I graduated in 2012. So you had a lot of like new changes coming down the pike for people that are in like primary care or any kind of non-elective type of medicine. Mm -hmm. And so all of the different doctors that I was shadowing with at the time said, uh, probably wouldn't go into medicine right now if I were you. And, uh, you know, with that background, the thought was always kind of, well, uh, I put myself through college selling motorcycles and did pretty well in sales and had, uh, by the time we moved to Denver, somewhat of a track record for having a successful sales career. And so the thought was to eventually get into medical device. Yeah, it's, it's crazy because a lot of similarities, like, you know, obviously this is all about you, but I'm going to, I'm going to steal, <laughs> I'm going to steal back some time. Uh, this Love is it. my show, but, um, <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, I was pre-med in, in college and I remember similar thing. I did an internship at Dana-Farber um, in, in Boston and went around, had a good relationship with a doctor that, that did research work there. And he was like, yeah, like if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't do it. And I was like, really? It's like, mm -hmm. yeah. And he gave me all the reasonings and I'm like, wow, this is crazy. So 
for me, that was the start of asking the question about whether or not I was even doing the right thing. Believe it or not, my, my, this is going to be like, this is going to sound really bad, but, um, I grew up without a lot of money and, um, everybody always said like, do good in school, all that jazz. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I went to the Boston public library. I opened a book that said average salaries and the book went through all average salaries and doctors were at the top of the list. I said, that's it. Okay. I'm going to medical school. So fa- fast forward to like my, my senior year, when I made the decision not to go, I read rich dad, poor dad. And I'm like, oh, between, man. between that and, and that I'm like, I'm not doing it. So anyways, back, back to you. So you got into sales and um, how, how did that kind of work? How did that transition into real estate? Well, that's funny that there definitely is a lot of uh, similarities in our stories. Um, so similar to you, we were coming, we were starting from ground zero, right? Luckily, my wife and I didn't have a tremendous student loan position that we had working against us, but we didn't really have any other advantages either. And so we started off by buying our primary residence uh, in 2016. It was a really crazy market in Denver, not too different from today, actually. Um, And we bought our very first townhouse uh, just on the edge of kind of like a growth area. Uh, And we were actually only able to get it under contract because at the time I was working in construction sales. That was like my business to business industry. And we went to go see one property, but they were probably six or seven months out. Like they were still doing the framing portion. Mm -hmm. And so I walked across the street onto an active job site that was further down the road or further along the process of being completed. And I just started talking with some of the guys in Spanish and figured out, you know, where's the boss at? I want to buy one of these units. And so we we're actually able to get it under contract before it hit the market. So that, that was your first experience then of like, what do I need to do to get a deal? Right. Exactly. Yep. And it's not waiting around and seeing, you know, how do you compete against everybody else? Yeah. So, exactly. so that was your first, your first deal. You lived in it. And then what happened after that? Yeah. So um, we bought that very first deal with an FHA, like three and a half percent down. And as soon as we closed on it, we were like broke. Like that was all we had. Fast forward a few months and I started the medical device role. So my income increased and then we started just buying other properties off of the MLS and being uh, in the Denver market, obviously cash flow is a, a huge luxury. Like if you can find a property that cash flows well, especially if you're not doing it full time, like I wasn't at the time, uh, that it's really difficult. But our focus has always been to increase our assets under management. Coming from you know uh, modest means, we'll say, and the rich dad poor dad influence. The goal was how do you control as many assets safely for the longest period of time possible? So even at the very beginning, it was always an equity build play for us. Uh, Fast forward to today, and now we're raising private capital, doing bird deals, doing multifamily deals. But it it started with FHA loans and buying stuff off the MLS. And people always, you know, ask about like, how do you do your first few deals? And usually it's like a similar story. Like you're using the FHA, you're house hacking, you're burring, and then, you know, things just kind of go from there. Mm-hmm. So, um, so 
you know, you did your, your first deal FHA. And then like, how did you get to, cause, cause it's easy to think about how you get to the first deal using an FHA. Cause anybody can understand that. But then yep. how did you go from one to like, you know, the next few? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the primary residence uh, equation started first and that's still, if I work with anybody as an agent or that's a client, I always recommend that they start with a primary. Um, it allows you to start with very little skin in the game. It's extremely safe and your rates are super advantageous. Um, but from there, you know, we basically were just more intentional about saving uh, a portion of our income. Uh, and we started moving from one house to the other when we very first uh, got going. So we actually moved out of that townhouse to our second unit. And then once we saved up the down payment for the third one, we moved again, moved again, and kept doing primary residence uh, owner-occupied loans on the first few. And keeping on to the ones that you left, right? Totally. Yep. Okay. And part of what influenced that decision for us was we had a really hard time knowingly selling something that we could reasonably expect it to be worth more in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Every single one of our properties, I'm pretty confident that 15 years from now, it's going to be worth more than they are today. So why would I sell that and let somebody else take advantage of the next 15 years of appreciation? Yeah. And even, even to add on to that, forgetting about the appreciation, I mean, obviously most of the listeners are going to know this, but like ranks aren't going down. Like we could probably have an argument over where prices are going and neither of us really know, but ranks aren't going down and your, your payments fixed. Right. So you're, you have the arbitrage there of like, you're getting the ranks to go up. Your, your, your cost is fixed. Um, and then you have the debt pay down. Right. So 15 years, whether or not prices go up, your equity is going to go up. That's pretty much a guarantee. We know that for sure. Right. So, um, so you got to your, you know, your first few, um, you know, just jumping from one to another to another. And then what, what happened after that point? Obviously well, at some point you can't do FHAs anymore, right? <laughs> it sounds right. like you like triple maxed out, I, you know, that, that <laughs> realm. But. Well, I, it is worth noting that, uh, you know, you can only have one FHA loan at any given time. Uh, but luckily, over the last few years, we were able to lever like 5%, 3% down conventional loans when we were first starting out and liquidity was more of an issue. But the funny thing, if you don't sell anything and you continue to acquire more properties is your equity position starts compounding. Uh, and so 4% a year on any one property is nice. But once you start getting to a scale is when you start having more of a business. And that's something else that I advocate for is, uh, you know, if you have one rental property, quit trying, quit trying to live off of that income. Mm. It, it's not safe. Maybe you can do it for a short period of time, but it's not a sustainable business. And so I'm a huge fan of, or a champion of getting people to scale as quickly as they safely can. So, um, you know, you talked about like then going to the point after that, was it about raising capital? Like, how did you get to the next stage? Well, I think. Or, or were you pulling equity from what you had? Like, what were you doing? No, uh, luckily the med device role was one that was a bit more lucrative. I wasn't making like half a million a year, but I was yep. doing well-ish. Uh, and so we were just really intentional about where we saved money. And really all you needed was you know, 5% down, down payment, and you were off to the races on your next one. Mm -hmm. um, 
Now we are in the uh, phase of our business where we've developed a track record for being able to successfully underwrite deals, operate deals. And we've created different entities where we bring on capital partners to allow us to increase uh, scale. And so we've purchased uh, in the last six months, about three and a half million dollars worth of real estate here in Denver. Nice. And what type of properties are they? Are they apartments? Are they um, like what, what type of asset class are you looking at? Um, a predominant majority of our portfolio right now is single family and small multi one to four units. Mm-hmm. Um, your typical quadplex in Denver is probably going to set you back between a million and 1.4. Yeah. Uh, and so if your goal is AUM, you can, you know, move that needle pretty quickly. Nice. Now, at what point along the way, because I know we talked about the fact that you did get your real estate license, at what point and why did you decide, hey, I want to have my real estate license along with being an investor? That's a great question. Uh, The the biggest driving factor for that was deal flow. Um, Just this year was finally the first year that I got my license. We bought our first deal in 2016, and then we were in investor mode only for the next five years. However, earlier this year, I uh, became an agent full-time and just went directly into it because our portfolio was at the point where kind of our passive or horizontal income is the term some people like to use, uh, was finally at the point where we could survive that leap of faith to a $0 annual salary. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that's then, tough going from like a high income earning sales position to zero. Exactly. It, it is tough. Luckily, it's been a huge blessing. Uh, I've been able to achieve some some success as an agent, uh, but I, I attribute a lot of that to the fact that our main focus is helping getting other people to create that kind of autonomy or freedom with their own time. Yeah, it's funny because like we've had so many guests on recently that have said a similar thing. And um, a lot of agents, when they talk to me about investing, you know, they'll say how it will negatively impact their sales business. And I would say the last like three to four people I've had on have all told stories about how being an investor has, you know, skyrocketed their, their real estate sales. So how has that kind of, you know, worked for you and how have you implemented that in your market? Yeah. Uh, well, for one, I think it, it gives you a, a steady stream of business. If you can actually speak investor needs and you have credibility in that game, Investors are always in the market, up market, down market, sideways market. They're always looking for deals. So yeah, it's great if you can help Tom and Susie Homemaker to you know downsize, upsize, move to a different neighborhood. Like that little shot in the arm of revenue as an agent is great. Nobody's going to turn it down. But if you can speak investor and you can uh, show them that you're doing what they're doing, A, you always have a client. And B, I think as podcasts have become more popular, YouTube channels have become more popular. There's not the number of people that are interested in creating an income while they're not working is higher than it's ever been. Yeah. And it's always been high to begin with. Um, Right. You know, who doesn't want to build passive income? Who hasn't read Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Who hasn't thought about investing in real estate? It's It's a huge segment of the population. So now, are you actively out there marketing yourself as an agent who helps investors? Like, what what are you doing that that has allowed you to have success? Because the first year for 
anybody who has their license is always the hardest, but you've got, you know, a pretty decent track record for year one. Like, what have you done to kind of like serve that niche and, and make good money while you're at it? That's a, that's a good question too, man. This is awesome. Um, the, the number one thing that I do, and this is going to be contrarian for a lot of people, but I don't have a huge marketing budget. I barely spend anything on marketing. I do relatively little cold calling. Uh, the number one focus for our outreach and for our market awareness is social media, uh, which is kind of weird for me because I'm naturally more of an introverted person. Yeah. Uh, but the other one is my, a friend of mine, AJ Osborne, who's kind of the king of self-storage based out of Idaho, um, has a saying that he likes to call be the bear. And that means like if you're looking for fish, don't stand on the side of the river and hope that like one comes up, go stand in the middle of the freaking river and put like the bat signal out there to let people know what you're looking for. Yep. So just last night we were at a real estate investor uh, networking event and I tell every single person what kind of deals we're looking for and let them bring them to me. Let's take a quick break from the episode. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. So you said that that would be a contrarian view. And I, I want to kind of go into that a little bit because I think that's, that was an interesting comment. Why do you, why do you say that? Well, for better or for worse, I feel that there's a perception that a majority of agents spend their entire day in an office cold calling title leads or absentee owners, or they have a huge like direct mail campaign, yeah. or they, they buy a ton of Zillow leads. I literally don't do any of that. Like, yeah. my, I spend 150 bucks a month marketing, but the people that are in my sphere, you know, we will go out to a really nice dinner once a month or something like that. I I'm intentional about making sure that my networking and I'm doing like the bunny rabbit air quote thing for people that are just listening. Yeah. Um, my marketing is just to build deeper connections with people that are already helping my business. I don't really have a desire to cold call a thousand people a day. So the reason that, that I wanted to focus on that is because I think that we're in a stage now, right? This is the end of, of 2021, whenever somebody listens to this, just so that we kind of have a, a time stamp on this. Yeah. The, the, the buying Zillow leads, cold calling, you know, doing it that way, to me, that's an outdated way of doing it. And, and I'm going to tell you why. I don't think that the people who are doing it that way are going to be super successful moving forward. So let's focus on Zillow just for a second, right? When somebody goes on Zillow and they click that button, what attachment do they have to that person? Zero, right? Absolutely zero. So when someone goes on Zillow, their only thought is, can this person get me into this property that I want to see that I found? By the way, you have no value. And if you can't show me it in whatever I want, that could be tomorrow, that could be next week, that could be tonight. I'm going to click the next person, right? Mm -hmm. So same thing with cold calling, right? You're calling somebody up, you're saying, hey, like I'm XYZ person. Um, on the other end of the phone is somebody who didn't want that call, doesn't have any, you know, doesn't perceive any value for you, and they're not attracted to you in any way. Whereas what you're doing is you're genuinely providing value for a customer. Now, it doesn't have to be an investor that you're providing value for. It could be a traditional homeowner, a traditional home seller, a traditional home buyer. But like as, as the market 
the real estate agent market becomes more commoditized, if you're somebody who's working in a commoditized way, you're going to get squeezed out. And, you know, Zillow can do whatever they want. They could turn around, they could become a brokerage tomorrow, not give these leads out. Um, the, the robocalling rules could get, you know, more strict. That could be outlawed. There's so many different things that can happen. But what you're doing, what you're saying is a contrary way of doing it, contrarian way of doing it, I would say is the way to do it because you are attracting somebody to you. And they are saying, I'm assuming that like that person, when they're coming to you, they're like, I actually want to work with Nick Cooley. I don't care like what their Zillow profile says, like I'm going to him specifically. So when that happens, who's your competition? I don't have any. You don't have any, right? (laughs) So if they're saying like, I want to go to you for a specific reason, then you know that that's a client. You know, I think it's interesting because like a lot of the ways that people were taught to do real estate are, it's not that they don't work anymore. It's that they're, they're not working quite as well and it's getting worse and worse and worse every year. So you see people try to do this stuff. Now, one more point I'm going to make on it. It's just that talking about like real estate agents, cold calling in an office or on the phone all day. Yeah. I don't see people doing it anyways. I I think that that's like an urban legend uh, that it's like what, you know, people think they're supposed to do, but they don't do it. So it's like, they're in this world of like not creating true value, which is like what you need to do for any business to be successful. Uh, so it's just kind of interesting that you're like at the end of year one, thinking that that's the way that you should be doing business. When I think it's just the wrong way to be taught in general. Right. Um, well, thanks for saying so, that. So uh, what percentage of your clients are, are investors versus like, do you work with any, if a traditional, if a person says, Hey, I want to buy my dream home. Are you referring that out? Are you taking that person on? No, I'm, I'm happy to work with uh, people on the residential side as well. Um, uh, a lot of my, I'd say it's about 50-50 actually. Yep. Uh, between investment and what I call like the retail business, just you know, 89% of your primary residents, they're just picking out where they're going to put the Christmas tree in the nursery and everything like that. Yep, I just did that. <laughs> The nursery part or the Christmas tree? Have both, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Oh, congratulations, man. That's awesome. Thank, thank you. Yeah. So, um, you. but, um, but yeah. So, so you're like 50-50 and yep. you're happy to work with both. But you're, are you doing anything that is attracting those residential people to you, or is that just like your sphere of influence? People that know you and like, if they come to you, they come to you, type of thing. You know what's funny is a lot of that focus, like I said, is social media. And there's something about people constantly seeing a video of somebody from like an arm's length away where you're kind of making them feel like they know you more than maybe that they really do. Uh, And even if you're just always talking about investing on social media or in general, you quickly kind of get that uh, association as being the real estate guy or the real estate girl. And even if it is somebody that just wants to do a residential transaction or a retail transaction, they still think of you first, as long yeah, as you're I, truly I, I, showing that you're the expert. And I even think that like the investing might even in their mind, put you even like a little bit of a notch up. Like if they understand investing, but then, then they have to understand how to help me find a home. Right. You know, and, and that's it's, just, I mean, just a perception that I would think. 
Exactly. And I've seen the same thing on the ground. Uh, There's a perception that like you're more well-equipped as a financial expert and using real estate as a wealth building tool, even if it is something that you're just going to use for your family. Well, if you think about it like this, getting back to the point about like the contrarian thing, I think Mm -hmm. most buyers in this market, they know how to like go online and search at homes. So that component to it, I don't think that they place a value on. It is all the other things. So if you're if you're an investor and that might be the part that's missing for them, they may not understand how this could fit into like their financial picture versus like if you're talking about, hey, like, you know, where's a good place to like live? I think a lot of people already know that and they've already done their right. homework. And by the time that they get to you, that's not really like... We we train a lot because I've got a brokerage too on kind of like a needs analysis and we talk about like where you want to live and stuff like that. But I, I feel like most of the people are kind of like there by the time that you get to them at this point. Totally. I even tell people flat out, like, look, my job <laughs> is not to show you houses. My job is to help you navigate this market and for to put every single bullet in your gun so that if you find the one that you do want to close on you have way better odds of being able to close on that one if you work with me. So um, what are some of your like agent and investing goals over the next like few years? Like if you thought about that, if you mapped that out, I know you wanted to get to like enough passive income and that's like probably the number one hurdle for most people, but where do you want to take it from here? So we're, we're hyper-focused on AUM, assets under management. I still think that way too many people as investing becomes more of a hashtag and more of a buzzword. Uh, I think there are so many people that calculate, okay, my burn rate a month is 2,500 bucks a month. How do I get 2,500 bucks a month passively? And then I'm free forever. It's like, "Eh, maybe until, you know, the next correction you are. Uh, So we have a goal, my wife and I, of reaching $30 million of assets under management over the next nine years. Mm-hmm. And that's really uh, goal number one. Now, um, for the people that are on here, right, that, um, yep. you know, you mentioned your wife a couple times. Yep. A lot of people want to invest and their significant other uh, may not be super interested. Now, yeah. were you both kind of totally on board with this stuff? Was was one of you leading the way? I'm assuming you were probably the one lagging behind, right? She was dragging uh, yeah. you along. But how, how did that work? Because I think it's it's important because if I've seen this time and time again, where like yeah. one person wants to invest, the other person isn't interested, and then it doesn't happen. So talk yeah. about that. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm shaking my head because uh, we've lived that too. Um, in many ways, I'm kind of the driver of our partnership, of our relationship. And my wife, Hannah, is very much the integrator. Like, uh, Tom, if you owed us 11 cents three months ago, Hannah will literally read every single page on a 59-page PDF to find that 11 cents. And then she's going to send you an email and be like, oh, hey, Tom, by the way, you owe us a dime and a penny. Mm-hmm. I don't worry about that at all. I focus on the big vision. And there, initially, there was a bit of a hurdle to overcome with that. Luckily, that gets easier as time goes on and you have more of a proof of concept. But one of the things that we've done is 
I used to bring a deal to her and be like, babe, I'm so excited. Check this out. This is a 25% cash on cash return in year one. It's in a great neighborhood, blah, 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 blah. And I'd walk through all the reasons why it was an awesome deal. And emotionally, she would just be like, no, it's too scary. No, can't do it. Don't want to do it. Too much risk. What we've done now that really has helped that is I've acknowledged that Hannah's uh, type A-ness to a certain extent uh, is her superpower. And so now, instead of me trying to pitch the deal to her, I'll bring the deal and say, hey, babe, uh, find where this, like poke holes in this. Tell me why this isn't a good deal. So I'm no lo- there's no longer resistance, but I'm encouraging her to utilize her superpower to help us both out because she'll bring up the one or two different things that she's concerned about on that particular deal. And as long as we can have a solid conversation about that, then we're off to the races. Yeah. So where do you come with the, um, the end goal of that dollar amount under, under management? I mean, it's going to be tied to something, right? Yep. Uh, so I view it uh, from a base point of uh, like the traditional securities equities portfolio of a 4% withdrawal rate. Uh, a lot of Denver is trading at about a four cap. So when we work backwards from that 30 number, get to a 4% return on that, that's 1.2. And so annualized or monthly, that's a hundred grand a month in passive. And that's if you want to pull equity, you're saying? Well, even if we get to that number and we start aggressively paying down equity, I, I don't yep. think I'm ever going to be at a part at a yep. point in my career where we have the portfolio paid off 100%. Uh, but even at 50% LTV, I think you still get really strong uh, passive income at that number. Yeah. Um, so what would you say to somebody who's a real estate agent who's wanted to do investing, but hasn't taken like the leap yet to do anything? Um, do something tangible to, to move the needle. Um, I think there's a lot of people that go to networking to listen to podcasts and you can kind of get that serotonin or that dopamine hit of being feeling like an investor because you're listening to other investors talking about it or you can kind of feel like you're moving forward because you're listening to a podcast, yeah. right? The very first thing that you should do is start analyzing deals. I challenge brand new clients or other agents that are looking to get into it to just analyze five deals a week. Whether that's a deal a day, you do all five of them on Thursday night with a glass of wine or whatever, tea, whatever it is people drink, whatever. I'm not making that choice for you. Um, but actually analyze deals and you'll start figuring out, you can find what are good deals in your market Yep. And then once you start, once you start getting comfortable with knowing like where things should be priced at, start putting offers in on stuff. Just, just start. Don't try to time the market. Do your first deal in the next ninety days. I think that's great advice and um, something that, you know, I, I hear over and over again. Just to take a small step, take some action, and then, um, you know, I think once you get in the mindset of, you know, you take one small step, then it's like, oh, that wasn't so bad. So I'm now I'm going to take, you know, step two. Um, yeah. It took me a while to do my first investment deal. It took me years of, of doing what you did. Uh, not what you did, I'm sorry. Doing what you said that some people do, which you <laughs> probably were talking about me, which is I, I did listen uh, when I, I mean, going back to when um, I started in like 05, like there really, I don't know if there were podcasts back then, but there were CDs. There was like a bunch of like networking mm-hmm. events and I, I did all that stuff. And it, it, it took me a couple of years to do my first deal. 
my first deal, I didn't do so well on. And it's funny because that actually made me want to do it more because I was like, Mm. oh, wow. Like if I did this first deal, it didn't go so well. And that's, it really wasn't that bad. Imagine how much better I'm going to be on deal number two. And that's just happening. The second deal we ever bought, uh, we walked into a $50,000 surprise special assessment. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the, it does happen. Um, totally. I, think, I think like you, people have to look at like, <clears throat> okay, so we know there's a, there's a negative risk, but what's the negative risk of not doing this? And that right. risk is actually really bad typically. And I think, especially for agents, you know, you, you'll see, and I, I don't want to knock this, but you see a lot of people that are like at the end of their career that are still having to make a bunch of money and they have to. Um, and I think that you want to get into a position where you don't have to as soon as you can. And I definitely applaud you for being able to, you know, quit a high paying job, do this full time and, um, you know, continue towards that, you know, end number that you're looking to get for assets under management. Well, thanks. I I think it's important to note for anybody that's listening to that, like we can share stories about all the bad deals that we've done, but even those, like, it's not that bad. It, people tend to have a belief that if you buy a $250,000 house, you could potentially lose 250 grand. Yeah. Eh, not really. I mean, even that deal that I was describing that we had a $50,000 assessment, uh, we're paying that off over the next 20 years. And just by not selling, we're now in an equity position of like $100,000 on that property. Yeah. So was it really that bad of a deal? No. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the thing that like with real estate that's different than a lot of other like asset classes is time really heals like everything in real estate. And you know, depending on where you're at in the market, all that good stuff, like, you know, it could be healed really fast or like a slow burn. Right. But you've got a fixed, you've got a fixed expense, ranks that are going up, asset values that are going up, pay down of a loan, depreciation. Um, one thing I always say to people is like, Hey, who do you know that has bought a lot of real estate that isn't in a good position right now? And the answer is like, I don't know. I mean, Nick, do you know anybody that bought a bunch of real estate? Every single person you talk to that's bought a bunch, uh, and Tom, you could, you'll probably know the exact thing that I'm about to say. What's the number one thing that they say? They wish they they would have done. Yep. (laughs) Done. Wish you bought more. And, and sometimes you can't. And, and, you know, so sometimes you run out of capital or you get into a tight spot or things can happen. But, you know, I, I think my biggest regret going back, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years. It's like when the market was at its bottom, like I wish I found out more ways to get under more. And I don't even know because I was 25, 24 at that point. Like, I don't even know if that was realistic, but that would be like, I would have tried harder to do that. Yeah. So, um, so obviously you've had a lot of success in this. Um, I'm sure that our listeners are going to be Googling you and stuff like that. Once we're done, what's the easiest way to kind of, you know, learn more about you or get in touch with you if anybody wants to reach out? Yeah, please. Uh, I'd love to have any kind of conversations, especially with people that are just starting out. Uh, obviously that's a big part of our story and it's near and dear to me to help people get off the ground. Uh, I'm most active on Instagram and my handle is I'm, I am Nick Cooley. 
Uh, and then that's probably the easiest way for people to, to find me. Okay. C-O-O-L-E-Y, right? You got it. All right, cool. Just want to want to make sure. So, yeah, I know. I appreciate you coming on. You've got a, a great story. Um, I don't know. We could be in parallel worlds here with the. We could both be doctors at this point. That's kind of a no, scary man. thought. But, uh, but no, I, I, uh, I thank you for coming on and sharing, you know, all your knowledge. And, uh, mm. you know, we'll we'll be back uh, next week with another episode of the Asian Investor Podcast. So thanks again, Nick. Thanks for listening to Agent Investor and especially thank you for sharing the show with other agents and reviewing the show on iTunes. Every time you share the show, you are potentially changing someone's life. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. And stay tuned for the next episode of Agent Investor.